0: Welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. Produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and supported through advertisements by Sanofi. I'm Patrick James Lynch, your host and resident person with hemophilia. Today's focus, aging with hemophilia. The triumphs, burdens, and uncertainties of longevity. Thanks for listening. We kick off the first episode of Season 2 of the Global Hemophilia Report right after this quick word from our featured advertiser.
1: Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global hemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is breaking barriers and supporting the community at sanofihemophilia.com.
0: now before getting into the complex topic of aging with hemophilia you heard me acknowledge that this episode kicks off season two of the global hemophilia report and that is thanks in large part to the commitment of this program's featured advertiser sanofi so on behalf of producer keith corneluk senior advisor dr donna d mckelly and the entire team behind the scenes thank you sanofi for continuing to support bloodstream media's audio journey through the data experiences and questions driving hemophilia research around the world. And with that, I'd like to introduce you listeners to Jonathan. They found out that I had uh, hemophilia when I was two. I bit my tongue and it wouldn't stop bleeding. Jonathan Hill was born with severe hemophilia A. His remarkable journey of growing up in the 1970s and 80s as a huge Dungeons and Dragons player and super fan of the Canadian rock band Rush is the subject of an autobiographical graphic novel titled Blood of the Paladin.
2: Factor had just become the cure that could quickly replace the missing protein factor in your blood and stop bleeding.
0: Like all the older men and women who are aging with hemophilia, Jonathan lived through a revolutionary time in treatment for hemophilia with the introduction of factor concentrates. So my parents really kind of pushed the limits, wanted me to have childhood without limitations. Childhood without limitations. Quite the aspiration for the parents of a boy born with severe hemophilia in the era before clotting factor concentrates. Jonathan's story can be heard in full on the Bloodstream media show, Blood of the Paladin, an adaptation of his graphic novel. You'll also hear more from him later on in this episode. Jonathan's story is a reminder that this group of aging and older people living with hemophilia is a group that, from a medical perspective, we have never seen before. Older people living with hemophilia are experiencing many of the health conditions affecting the older general population hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, malignancy, chronic kidney disease, sexual dysfunction, and neuropsychological dysfunction or degeneration. However, unlike their non-hemophilic peers, the currently aging hemophilia population also continues to live with the ever-increasing burden of the irreversible complications of their underlying bleeding disorder, which may simultaneously be both unique to hemophilia and intersectional with their experience of the general comorbidities of aging. While those 65 years old or older currently represent about seven to eight percent of the U.S. hemophilia population, an additional 15 to 16 percent are aged 45 to 64, suggesting that a sizable 20 to 25 percent of the U.S. hemophilia population is experiencing or beginning to experience the intersection of hemophilia and aging on their health and well-being. Therefore, in this episode, we will explore what we know and what we must seek to know about the intersection of hemophilia and aging, and how the complexity of aging with hemophilia can guide the evolution of multidisciplinary care of older men and women with hemophilia, as well as inform future research priorities, all in an effort to further optimize lifespan and quality of life for senior people living with hemophilia. Importantly, even as we largely orient this discussion to aging with hemophilia in high and middle income countries, we recognize the enormity of the unmet need in low income countries globally. We begin the discussion of challenges related to aging with hemophilia with an important positive note on why it is we are even facing these challenges in the first place.
3: We'll talk about the challenges of growing older with hemophilia, but really it's a consequence of success that in my years in hemophilia, we've really advanced our care.
0: Dr. Barbara Conkel is the Chief Scientific Officer and Associate Director for the Washington Center for Bleeding Disorders at Bloodworks Northwest. In addition to her clinical work, Dr. Conkel is a researcher studying, amongst other things, cardiovascular disease in hemophilia
3: having products that are easier to take, that provide more coverage, has benefit the population, as well as treatment of comorbidities, better treatment of those who unfortunately became infected with HIV. Being able to cure individuals with hepatitis C has been such an advance for the hemophilia population.
2: The reason that we're discussing these healthcare issues of older age is because of the success of our treatment that we've been able to deliver to individuals with hemophilia.
0: Echoing the point made by Dr. Conkle, Dr. Jerry Dolan is the head of department and clinical lead of the hemostasis and thrombosis service at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital in London of the United Kingdom. He is the current chairman of the United Kingdom Hemophilia Center Doctors' Organization and also chairs the NHS Clinical Reference Group for Hemophilia as well as the European Hemophilia Therapy Standardization Board. Similar to Dr. Conkel, Dr. Dolan has a particular interest in the management of adults and older adults with hemophilia.
2: So the life expectancy, a pivotal study was done in the United Kingdom back in the 80s, 90s, and it showed there was a a significant discrepancy between individuals with hemophilia and non-hemophilia with regards to life expectancy.
0: And that discrepancy is only greater the further back in time you go. However, median life expectancy grew significantly between 1920 and 1980, rising from 11 years to 57 years for people living with severe hemophilia, and from 28 years to 72 years for people living with mild to moderate hemophilia.
3: Treatment of comorbidities of those who unfortunately became infected with HIV, being able to cure individuals with hepatitis C has been such an advance for the hemophilia population.
0: And 1980 is a logical endpoint for the life expectancy data I just shared because, sadly, the epidemic of transfusion-transmitted infections, or TTIs, most notably hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, severely impacted life expectancy for nearly two decades. To Dr. Conkle's point, eventual mitigation of TTI-associated morbidity and mortality has since facilitated a rebound in life expectancy across hemophilia
4: severities. When you look at the cause of death, if I am looking at the data from community counts and the CDC, I've been watching this for several years. This is Randall
0: Curtis, better known as Randy or even the Geezer Session Guy as Randy, himself an older person who was born with hemophilia, has become synonymous with patient community education on the needs and experiences of older guys with hemophilia here in the United States. In addition to building a career in computer and information technology services, Randy has also been highly active as an investigator in studies related to patient-reported outcomes as well as to the utilization of hemophilia services. In other words, while he is also a patient, Randy is most definitely a data guy.
4: It used to be that like one of the major causes of death in hemophilia was HIV infection and that's down to like 4% now. Liver disease is still number one at 16% but cancer is up to 15% so the second leading cause of death in hemophilia is tied between cancer and bleeding with cardiovascular disease coming in at position 4. So you know cancer and cardiovascular disease Those are part of the normal population's top three causes of death. So hemophilia is slowly kind of morphing into more of a normal life expectancy. And the cause of death is frequently becoming less hemophilia related over time.
3: When we look at resource countries? We're looking at about a quarter of the hemophilia population being middle aged and older. So it's shifting from being a very pediatric-focused disease to being an adult disease into old age. And all of us, as we age, have more issues. And so that becomes the challenge of aging and hemophilia, but also a celebration of aging and hemophilia.
0: A celebration, certainly, but not one without complexity and complications, including those to musculoskeletal health. And that's where we'll pick up right after
1: this quick break. Globally, approximately 75% of people living with hemophilia have limited or no access to treatment. Sanofi is committed to helping address this public health crisis. In 2020, Sanofi, together with Sobi, extended their support for the WFH Humanitarian Aid Program fulfilling their 2014 pledge to donate up to 1 billion IUs of Factor for humanitarian use over a 10-year period. This is the single largest donation of hemophilia factor therapy and has already provided treatment for more than 17,300 people in 43 countries. An important first step to providing a sustainable supply of therapy to those in need. To learn more about Sanofi's global commitment to the hemophilia community, visit SanofiHemophilia.com. Welcome back.
0: We kick off this segment on musculoskeletal health with Dr. Barbara Conkle.
3: So the question of musculoskeletal health over time and some of the studies, recent HUG studies that looked into middle-aged and older patients with hemophilia, that brought out the prevalence of musculoskeletal issues in mild and moderate hemophilia.
0: Two important notes here. Firstly, the Hematology Utilization Group, or HUG, study that Dr. Conkle cites is one that, for starters, her Washington Center for Bleeding Disorders participated in, and is one of the studies that has been led by episode contributor Randy Curtis. Secondly, with regard to issues related to mild and moderate hemophilia that HUGS has revealed, according to data from HUGS Part 7, The participants included 25 males between the ages of 40 and 49 and 45 males age 50 or older. Randy explains why this has led to a disparity in data on severe hemophilia versus mild and moderate.
4: Well, I think that as the younger part of the cohort, the 40 to 49 group, ages into the 50 and over group, that disparity of severes is going to change because the the older group has less severes in it because they're gone. Right? They haven't survived, and so we have a, a disproportional number of moderates and milds in that older cohort just because that's who's still around. And then if we look at those under 40, that's a healthier group that's going to age into this cohort. And so the picture of aging and hemophilia is going to change as these younger guys age into this category
0: though not specifically about aging or older people with hemophilia, Dr. Conkel extrapolates on why this increased data on adult men with mild and moderate hemophilia is of vital importance to the management of hemophilia of all severity types going forward.
3: There's more attention on mild and moderate hemophilia now, I think, for a couple of reasons. One is we know that patients with moderate hemophilia often have a lot of bleeding, and We used to target prophylaxis in most patients to put them in the moderate hemophilia range. But we've learned that, and this needs to be individualized, but for many patients, that's not a high enough level. And to add on to that, we now have these new therapies from factored mimetics, to rebalancing agents, to better long acting factors, to gene therapy that are all going to put patients in the mild to moderate range who were severe before. And the good thing about that, in addition to having better therapy, is that we will have more attention in those areas which we, I think, really ignored in the past.
2: With regard to the musculoskeletal issues in the older population, I think we have to roll back a few decades and look at individuals before they get to that period of older age. And when we reflect on how much work we put into the musculoskeletal health of our clients with hemophilia, we focus a lot on childhood. We try to make sure the boys grow up healthy and strong with good muscle tone, protect their joints, and they participate in sport to keep them generally healthy. I'm not sure we do the same when they get to adulthood.
3: Joints that get damaged in childhood or young adulthood continue to cause problems and then on top of that we have joint disease that generally develops as people age so we have to really pay attention to these things in childhood and if you look 40 years ago so i think that kind of 40 and above is the age of the population being studied in the u.s prophylaxis was just really beginning to be used widely for children. And I remember arguments, we're not going to use this in adults, we're going to use it in children, there's not an indication in adults. And then subsequently learned how effective it is in preventing bleeding in adults, and also that it can really eliminate target joints and improve joint health, even though we're giving it after they've developed joint disease. And so there's been a real shift in that time period. And patients, who are 40, have lived through that shift. But now when we have a child who is born, the approach is very different than it was 40 years ago. So with that, I expect to see this improve as those individuals get older.
0: The introduction of prophylaxis as a strategy, which we covered in depth on episode two, was revolutionary in hemophilia care. And yet, with such an emphasis on primary or pediatric prophylaxis, there was something of a slower adoption to the strategy by some adult patients, and as Dr. Conkel references, by some treaters of adult patients as well. So what research is needed to help us better understand how to optimize the use of prophylaxis in older adults and elderly persons with hemophilia?
3: In terms of what research we need to optimize prophylaxis, we do have data from clinical trials where they've enrolled you know, a span of ages. It usually doesn't continue up into 60s, 70s, which I always find disappointing because then how do I apply this to my older patient? But that being said, we do have outcome data in prophylaxis showing that those adults eliminate target joints, that their joint function improves. There have now been several studies. Do we know what the right dose is? I don't know. That's a study that will ever be done in part because we have these evolving therapies. And so what are we going to compare to what because there's going to be a new therapy?
0: It is worth underscoring Dr. Conkles' disappointment that more clinical trials in hemophilia are not enrolling older and elderly patients. That recruitment and enrollment piece seems like one area in need of improvement. Now, switching perspectives from research to the clinic, When it comes to the management of aging and older people with hemophilia and determining the best course of action for treatment, dose, regimen, and holistic self-care practices, how do you best take stock of your patient's bone and joint health? What are you looking for or asking them about? What are your priorities in pursuit of an optimized plan?
3: So in seeing an older patient with hemophilia, particularly with severe or moderate hemophilia, In part, it becomes a challenge because particularly some of the much older patients are very used to living with their joint disease and issues related to that. So the first thing is really to understand, are they bleeding, is their bleeding controlled? In our program, more and more older patients are on prophylaxis, some are hesitant to do that. Some of the new medicines make that a little easier. I do have repeat conversations about prophylaxis year after year with some patients. And if there's a question of bleeding, musculoskeletal ultrasound has been such an important addition to our program and to the care of patients with hemophilia, because it can be hard to tell If the joint is bleeding, if the joint's inflamed, if it's just arthritis.
0: Musculoskeletal ultrasound and other tools for determining bone and joint health are discussed in depth on episode three, titled Bone and Joint Health Monitoring and Detection Strategies.
3: The big thing in men and women with arthropathy is pain, and we're still not very good at treating pain that takes multiple approaches. I think that's so hard to treat that it's very easy to just ignore it and that we can't do.
0: And to hear more about the research and expert thinking on pain and pain management in hemophilia, pop back two and three episodes in your podcast player for the episodes titled Pain in Hemophilia. That will conclude this string of references to previous Global Hemophilia Report episodes. Thanks for listening. Now, coming back to research and expert thinking on musculoskeletal health and aging people living with hemophilia, are there any notable studies exploring how best to enhance bone and joint health in this population?
2: I know that in countries like Germany, there's quite a big program of building musculoskeletal health at an earlier age, muscle strength building, these balance. Enhancing exercises so that individuals to maintain that tone, reduce the muscle loss that a lot of individuals face as they grow older. You know, when it gets to the stage where these are problems, it's a little bit too late when we could have missed opportunities at an earlier phase. And of course, all of this has to be underpinned by good quality haemophilia care to make sure that patients can participate in these exercises, these muscle strength building, these balance, enhancing exercises safely without the risk of bleeding, without the risk of causing more joint damage. So it helps the balance, maintains mobility and independence, and it reduces the risk of falling in older age group.
3: That is a real risk to our patients who have had Uh, joints have had joint replacement, having a person's home environment be one where they don't have rugs they can slip on, that they use devices to help them walk, that could be really hard to accept. And the consequences of breaking a bone and the implications of that, which also brings in the question of low bone density and how we should be assessing and treating that.
2: With respect to bone health, there have been over the past few decades some tantalising reports where it suggests that there may be an issue with individuals with haemophilia. Some studies have demonstrated that there is a lower bone density in individuals with haemophilia compared to non-haemophilic individuals. But I think it was certainly my interpretation that it's not entirely clear why that is. We already know that... In individuals who have significant joint problems in haemophilia, you often see peri joint reduction in bone density. There may be some element of that, or maybe that in the past, because of inadequate treatment, individuals with haemophilia simply didn't exercise enough or didn't do enough weight load bearing exercise, which helps build the bone strength. You lay down a lot of your bone mineralization in your earlier years when you're more active and you've got a good diet and you're healthy. And if individuals with haemophilia are not in that position are not able to build up that bone mineralization, then it can present at a later stage. So having said that, I'm not sure in the haemophilia community, it's widely accepted as a specific problem, lower bone density. And I think it's certainly an area that deserves more research and more understanding of what the causes are Can it be prevented? Does it need treated?
0: This discussion certainly suggests that research pursuing the questions that Dr. Dolan just articulated is needed. Along those lines, these most recent points about low bone density specifically beg some questions about the prevalence of osteoporosis in aging people living with hemophilia. The U.S. National Institutes of Health defines osteoporosis as a bone disease that develops when bone mineral density and bone mass decreases or when the structure and strength of bone changes. This can lead to a decrease in bone strength that can cause an increased risk of fractures. We asked Dr. Dolan for his take on the intersection of hemophilia, aging, and osteoporosis specifically.
2: Well, I mean, I think the science of osteoporosis in some countries, I think certainly in our country, is pretty much focused on women with osteoporosis. I think the whole area of men with osteoporosis is less well-recognized or less well-known, certainly among the general population and maybe among the general medical community. But it's such a a simple, non-invasive investigation to apply to people that you think may be suffering from osteoporosis. Maybe they have bone pain, maybe they have changes in their stature and they may develop problems such as back pain or even in the advanced stages of vertebral collapse or fracture of bones, then these individuals should be referred to a specialist centre and maybe make sure that the haemophilia medical staff have an understanding of who should be screened, who should be referred, and then that they get appropriate treatment to prevent actual problems.
5: One of the most crucial concepts in care of the elderly medicine and in geriatrics is the concept of frailty. That voice
0: belongs to Dr. William McKeown.
5: I'll defer to him to introduce himself. I'm a patient with severe haemophilia A from Northern Ireland, but uh, I'm also a doctor and I specialize in care of the elderly medicine. So haemophilia and how it affects older patients with bleeding disorders is a real interest and a real passion for me personally. Yes, you heard
0: that correctly. For our episode on aging with haemophilia, the team over here at Global Haemophilia Report found the one person in the world with severe hemophilia who's a doctor specialized in elderly medicine with both a personal passion and professional expertise for the intersection of aging and hemophilia? Can you believe it? Shout out to the casting team here, but I digress. We'll pick back up with Dr. William McKeown and his take on frailty right after one more break.
1: Did you know that nearly 80% of bleeds in hemophilia occur in the joints? Joint bleeds are the most common type of bleed, and can cause lasting damage as well as increase the risk of recurrent bleeds. Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers for patients, including providing resources and education to support joint health. Visit hemejointhealth.com to see how routine, objective assessment might benefit patients' joint health for the long term. Again, that's heme, as in H-E-M, jointhealth.com. This site is intended for US healthcare professionals.
5: We often think of patients not just as an age, but we think of them as uh, somebody with comorbidities and and how physiologically robust they are. So as you get older, you will become frailer a lot of the time. And if you're frailer, you have less physiological reserve. And that might be okay for day-to-day life. But if you're very frail and illness strikes, so a chest infection, a urinary tract infection, you're much less well-equipped to weather that storm. Your function might be impaired, you can't walk anymore. You may be sicker for longer and you may not recover to your previous baseline. So this is a really important concept in general medicine. How frail is someone, how physiologically robust are they? And this is very poorly understood in haemophilia. So there's, there's very little data on what frailty and lack of physiological reserve looks like in people with haemophilia. So we need to understand what frailty looks like in haemophilia population so that we can make appropriate treatment decisions for them as they get older, especially in areas such as cardiovascular disease.
3: I think there are more questions of which I'm challenged with is if we have someone on prophylaxis, what is the level we need for anticoagulation? That's a
0: big one. Transitioning now from discussion on musculoskeletal health to cardiovascular health. Both doctors McKeown and Konkel acknowledge the inherent tension that exists in treating someone with hemophilia with medicine to help them coagulate. And if that same person has cardiovascular disease or deficiency requiring anticoagulants or blood thinners, balancing the treatment of hemophilia with the treatment of their cardiovascular condition. How do we begin to both make sense of the seemingly contradictory observations about cardiovascular disease and people with hemophilia, and to tease out the hemophilia and age-related risk factors for cardiovascular disease while also appreciating their intersectionality? Just a simple little question that we posed to Dr. McKeown.
5: So there are a number of things that put patients at higher risk of cardiovascular disease. And just to clarify what we mean by that, we mean ischemic strokes, peripheral vascular disease, atrial fibrillation, coronary artery disease. So a lot of common conditions will put a person at increased risk of developing these conditions. So high blood pressure, diabetes. So... We know that in people with haemophilia, some of these risk factors occur at higher frequency. So to take an example of hypertension or high blood pressure, it's significantly higher in the haemophilia population and it's higher again in people with severe haemophilia like me. Now that would lead you to expect that people with haemophilia would have more cardiovascular events, so more myocardial infarctions, more ischemic strokes. Yet surprisingly, this is not the case. So for people with hepophilia, they actually have a lower risk of having these cardiovascular events, despite the fact that they have more risk factors. The reason we think this is, is because of the mechanism by which a lot of these cardiovascular events occur. So a lot of them are to do with abnormalities in blood clotting tending towards thrombosis signs. So to take a myocardial infarction or a heart attack. That is where a clot forms in a coronary artery and disrupts blood supply to the myocardium or the heart muscle. Or to take the example of an ischemic stroke, a clot blocks an artery that supplies some area of the brain, for example, the middle cerebral artery. So for people with bleeding disorders, although we have a higher burden of risk factors like hypertension, our chances of actually developing these clots that are the culprits behind these events is lower.
2: I mean, it's interesting to reflect on one of the biggest causes of cardiovascular morbidity in any population, which is hypertension. We know that if you control hypertension, if you recognize it and treat it appropriately, then you can prevent a lot of the sometimes devastating complications. I'm a part of a European group who study general medical health of older individuals with haemophilia. And it's a common discussion point that certainly in previous decades, individuals with haemophilia were so focused on these issues such as bleeding and joint disease and pain that they neglect almost the rest of their health. There are many anecdotal reports that individuals don't go anywhere near their family physicians and their family practitioners and they miss the opportunity to receive the kind of preventative medicine screening that all people should have. And so maybe hypertension is recognized fairly late on, and it may be quite embedded, and it may be a bit more difficult to treat. They may have developed complications that are difficult to reverse, and that's a real missed opportunity.
0: Is high blood pressure or hypertension something that is more or less common in people with hemophilia than in the general population?
2: There are several studies which suggest that hypertension may be more prevalent in individuals with hemophilia, and again... It's not fully understood why that might be. It may be a complication of transfusion transmitted infection or the medication, such as as heart therapy. It may be a link with the episodes of hematuria that many individuals with hemophilia have experienced over their lifetime.
0: Hematuria means there is blood in the urine, which can be caused by, amongst other things, inflammation or damage to internal organs, such as kidneys, the bladder, or prostate.
2: But this deserves quite close scrutiny.
3: Cardiovascular disease has been studied by a number of groups in hemophilia, including my own.
0: As mentioned earlier, cardiovascular disease and hemophilia is an area of study and interest for Dr. Conkel.
3: And how I look at it is the data are convincing that individuals with hemophilia develop atherosclerosis like others.
0: Atherosclerosis is the buildup of fats, cholesterol, and other substances in and on the artery walls. This buildup, referred to as plaque, can cause narrowing in the arteries, obstructing blood flow. Plaque can also burst, leading to a blood clot.
3: A number of studies have shown that the risk of an acute event, like an acute MI...
0: Acute MI referring to an acute myocardial infraction, a.k.a. heart attack.
3: Or a thrombotic stroke is less in individuals with hemophilia.
0: Well, that's comforting.
3: That has not been found uniformly.
0: Okay, perhaps I spoke too soon.
3: But I think if you take the body of evidence, it suggests that maybe that there is a decreased risk.
2: If we focus on ischemic heart disease, mm-hmm. where atherosclerosis or the hardening of the arteries and a narrowing of the blood vessel lumen leading to starvation of blood you know, to the tissues, I remember... You know, as part of the Advanced group, which is a European collaborative enterprise where physicians in many countries in Europe collect prospective data on individuals reaching the older stages of life.
0: Before going any further, can you share more about this Advanced group? Who makes up the Advanced group, and what is the mission?
2: The, the Advanced group is a collaboration of European physicians in many countries. And some time ago, probably about 10 years ago, we set up this register, and I think we've collected many hundreds of patients over the age of 50. And we follow them prospectively, and we have annual updates on the data. And the hope is that we will have a better understanding of the natural history of The conditions which tend to emerge as an individual ages and particularly how it interacts with haemophilia and we've even widened the collaboration because there is an advanced group in japan and there is one in the united states and canada so there may even be a much bigger group of these older individuals to generate real critical mass to be able to answer some of the questions that we struggle with
0: That is helpful context. Thank you. Now, you were saying something about the advanced group and ischemic heart disease. So
2: we were reflecting on ischemic heart disease. And I remember that a couple of case reports from my own hometown in Glasgow, actually, the Glasgow Hemophilia Center, reported two cases of individuals with hemophilia, severe hemophilia, who died of myocardial infarction. And the reason they were reported was that nobody expected that to happen. Nobody expected heart disease to be a feature of haemophilia. And the autopsy reports of those patients had shown that they had quite extensive atherosclerosis. And the circumstance which caused their final illness was that they had medical conditions which required intensive treatment with factor. And that led on to quite a, a plausible and I think well accepted theory now that maybe the clotting defect in hemophilia may prevent or may help reduce the risk of occlusion of an affected blood vessel. So it's narrowed by atherosclerosis, but it often takes a clot in that blood vessel to actually occlude it completely. And then maybe in hemophilia, there is some degree of protection there.
3: The question has come up, should we not treat patients?
0: With cardiovascular disease.
3: Because they're low factor level would help them. And I think there's no evidence to support that.
0: Interestingly, there is some data to suggest that female carriers of hemophilia may have some degree of protection against cardiovascular disease.
3: We learned from the epidemiologic study in the Netherlands, in carriers of hemophilia, that they had less cardiovascular disease. It doesn't mean that they don't develop cardiovascular disease. But that, I think, was the first study that really pointed to having a lower factor level could be protective of cardiovascular disease.
0: At least amongst some female carriers, according to this one study.
3: And one could also hypothesize that since we know inflammation increases cardiovascular disease, that having recurrent bleeds, it could we haven't proven that that's a risk factor for cardiac events, but knowing the data, one could hypothesize that also. So we need to treat our patients optimally to control their bleeding and to prevent joint morbidity and other things, and then we address their cardiovascular disease
2: been another autopsy study in the states comparing hemophilic individuals and non-hemophilic individuals showing exactly the same level of atherosclerosis in both groups and in fact why should factor VIII deficiency affect atherosclerosis because it's not intimately involved in that process. So things like smoking, high cholesterol etc can occur in any population and that will predispose to atherosclerosis. And there have been other studies looking at ultrasound studies of blood vessels which look at the thickening of the blood vessel which is a precursor to this ischemic heart disease as well again showing very similar rates between individuals with haemophilia and non-haemophilia. So that's a basic underlying pathogenesis or the cause of the ischemia. But a pivotal um, Dutch study by Fritz Rosendahl and colleagues some time ago suggested that individuals with haemophilia had a reduced risk of actually presenting with the clinical consequences of Vascular disease, and, I, and the postulation was I explained earlier that perhaps the clotting defect protects individuals. And the literature, lots of case reports of ischemic events, angina, heart attacks, and strokes, they're almost always during periods of intense replacement therapy, even in individuals with inhibitors. And it's often in a post-operative setting that these events occur.
3: We do address bleeding a little more gingerly if they have cardiovascular disease, and this is not data-driven either. But just the thought that we probably don't want high factor eight spikes, in someone who is having ongoing cardiac disease so we may modify their approach or at least their treatment with a bleed where we're really trying to control their levels a little more carefully
5: another area that i think we really need to gather data urgently is what does it mean to be a frail older person with haemophilia and I would say the reason this matters is because it guides our treatment decisions so for somebody who's very very frail it's not always appropriate to treat them as aggressively because they are less likely to get the benefit from that treatment so very tightly controlling cardiovascular risk factors like blood pressure or diabetes in somebody who is very frail it's just not always appropriate because by lowering their blood pressure too much they may have a collapse and fall and break their hip by treating their blood sugar too aggressively, they might have a hypo again, they'll fall, break their hip, and come to harm.
2: Now this is a very important phenomenon because we're now in an era where we're using therapeutic agents which really raise the ability to clot. So if you're looking at the factor eight mimetics or the the higher doses of factor eight that we're able to deliver to patients or the rebalancing agents or even gene therapy we'd be able to give people sustained levels of improved clotting.
5: It's quite interesting. So some data was published by a group of the UK Hemophilia Centre directors about their patients on emicizumab, And emicizumab is a wonderful drug. It's very, very safe. However, some small number of people on it will go on to develop clots. And quite a lot of those people are actually older people with cardiovascular risk factors. And that's not really a surprise. So when we increase the risk of clotting by treating their bleeding disorder, we also have to accept we might increase their risk of developing a cardiovascular event.
2: Sometimes I've heard people suggesting that these agents may cause a heart attack or may cause ischemic heart disease. And my view is that I think that's an oversimplification. The the real aim is to protect the patient from bleeding but that in turn may unmask the fact that the patient has had some atherosclerosis and had maybe been at risk of an event for some time that's unmasked when you get these. So I I think we really need to try and understand this risk and what we do about it a lot better, because our treatment of hemophilia is getting better and better. And so we might naturally as a consequence in older individuals, because this generally is a disease of older individuals, see more cardiovascular events. So what should we do about that?
0: Good question, Dr. Dolan. What should we do about it?
2: My own view is that I think the hemophilia treatment centers should expand their holistic role in managing individuals with hemophilia. And they they focus on these relatively simple interventions, such as checking a blood pressure, maybe testing for diabetes, maybe testing for lipids as part of their comprehensive care of their individual patients if they feel competent to manage this then they can initiate treatment or at least link in with a specialist service that can address these issues we're in this potentially difficult situation where we have a patient who is at risk of bleeding they develop a thrombotic disease which would then mandate treatment with antiplatelets or anticoagulants which kind of doesn't really make sense and The problem we have is that haemophilia is a rare condition and so we lack the high-powered studies to know exactly what we should do. If you look at the literature in journals like New England Journal of Medicine or in cardiovascular journals, conditions such as managing ischemia or managing atrial fibrillation, the information is derived from studies with many thousands of patients to get the proper quality of data to direct therapy and we, we will never have that because we we'll never have those numbers of patients so we don't know exactly where the risk benefit ratio is in our individuals what we do know is patients should be treated urgently so if, if an individual with hemophilia presents with what we call acute coronary syndrome they're developing serious signs or very worrying signs that they're about to have a major vascular event they should be treated urgently as everybody else should the number one thing is to try and make the patient as normal as possible from the clotting point of view to replace their factor to allow treatment to proceed as normally as as we can
5: we really need to think about how we individualize our approach to care in people with bleeding disorders do we just say nobody gets anticoagulants nobody gets anti-platelets or do we attempt to bring a bit of nuance to the weighing up of the risk and balance? So I think there is a role for measuring thrombin capacity, measuring pharmacokinetics, uh, and potentially picking apart uh, individual elements of people's coagulation cascade and the regulation thereof so i think this is an area we really need to understand better and we can't just treat all patients as if they have the same bleeding and hemothrombotic risk as they get older
4: the things that i've seen are the strategic relationships that the particularly the adult centers are forming with their colleagues in cardiovascular disease because treating hemophilia patients for cardiovascular disease is not the same as just anybody with cardiovascular disease, right? Because you have to get these guys to stop clotting, but let them keep clotting. And and that's a a dance. You have to have a, a relationship between cardiology and hemophilia. The same thing with dialysis and guys with kidney disease. Nephrology and hematology have to talk to each other. And so these strategic relationships with pain management specialties, hepatology, nephrology, cardiovascular disease, and mental health specialists. The HTC still has to be the quarterback, if you will, of this team, but they have to bring in these other folks to lend their expertise to help manage this aging population that has these other comorbidities that they didn't used to see because we didn't live long enough to get these comorbidities.
0: Randy puts it plainly, while also bringing up liver health, mental health, kidney health, and other aspects of aging with hemophilia that we'll cover in the next episode. We'll round out discussion for this episode with one final question on research priorities pertaining to cardiovascular disease. We heard about the ongoing work of the ADVANCE group and relevant data available from things like the HUGS study— We also heard Dr. Konkel lament that there aren't more older patients enrolled in many hemophilia clinical trials, and we heard Dr. Dolan admit that for sheer population size reasons, that we'll never have studies in cardiovascular disease and hemophilia that are as robust as one would ideally like from a critical mass of data point of view. All of that being said, what are the specific research priorities pertaining to cardiovascular disease and aging persons with hemophilia?
3: So, I think the priorities in cardiovascular disease and hemophilia is to better understand what the risks are in that setting. And so, more data on who's developing cardiovascular disease and if we can identify risk factors and assess if they're different than the general population. I think we could still use more data in that area, but I think that the studies and the data we need are more how we manage cardiovascular disease in the setting of hemophilia. Because Mm -hmm. it's not like the general population is not developing cardiovascular disease. And so we're not really going to prevent cardiovascular disease in our population any better than we prevent it in general. It's part of aging and then also lifestyle. So we can work on that as best we can and talk to our patients, but we still need to to manage them, because I think in general, we'd say, ah, just put you on some anticoagulant and that'll be it. And, And we can't do that with our hemophilia patients, but we also can't let them not be treated at all. And I think that's sometimes what happens. Oh, you have hemophilia, well, you'll be protected. And we don't know that. We're not gonna study how well unprotected treatment to prevent stroke is in hemophilia. But we know that patients with low factor eights or nines can still have embolic strokes and can still form cots. So how to manage those individuals? What's what's the best approach? That's, I think, where we really, really need data.
0: So let's recap. On this episode, we spoke about improved life expectancy and health-related quality of life, and acknowledged that challenges related to aging with hemophilia are really a tribute to the advancements in hemophilia care, since the challenges are largely similar to those faced in the general population of aging people. We heard discussion and some details about the size and severity types of this increasingly growing aging cohort, learned a bit about numerous studies, including the Randy Curtis-led HUGS study and the work of the advanced group that Dr. Dolan belongs to, Dr. McKeown introduced the concept of frailty and emphasized why we need to understand more about frailty in older people with hemophilia specifically, and Dr. Conkle reinforced that whatever theories may exist about hemophilia, factor levels, and potential protection against cardiovascular disease, that rule number one is to treat a person with hemophilia optimally for protection against bleeding. Finally, We heard calls for HTCs to expand their holistic approach to care by including certain preventative health checks for adult patients. And we heard credit given to adult centers that have already begun meaningful partnerships with experts in cardiovascular health, kidney health, and the like. Before we go, let's return to the story of Jonathan Hill, who you heard at the top of the episode, with comments that he made as part of the Bloodstream Media program, Blood of the Paladin. I think the idea of the sky's the limit is somebody with uh, unexpected challenges the way through or the way over to get back up again, to push on, to try, try again, even though it might be
1: discouraging.
0: While childhood without limitations may have been a lofty, if not unattainable, ideal for his parents to hold, Jonathan's attitude of the sky is the limit, which I can only credit at least in part to his parents' commitment is how Jonathan has been able to navigate the twists and turns of his most unlikely journey, much like a hero in Dungeons & Dragons. Which is something that, to be frank, most people with severe hemophilia in Jonathan's aging and older cohort have had to muster in order to survive and thrive in spite of extraordinary challenges. I hold Jonathan and his peers in that way, in the highest of regards. Kudos and bravo to you all. Also, it's worth noting the value of having the role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons to connect Jonathan with a close group of friends during an exceptionally dark period of his life growing up. His remarks reinforce the impact that hemophilia and comorbidities such as HIV and HCV have on an individual's mental and social health as well. We'll cover mental and social health of aging persons with hemophilia alongside the topics of renal function, liver disease, malignancy, and sexual function next time on part two of our two episodes of coverage on aging with hemophilia, the triumphs, burdens, and uncertainties of longevity. I would like to thank doctors Jerry Dolan, Barbara Conkel, and William McKeown along with researcher and patient Randy Curtis and patient author Jonathan Hill for contributing to this episode. Thanks as well to Drs. Dolan and Conkle for serving as topic advisors as well. Thank you, Dr. D. Kelly, for serving as the senior advisor on the Global Hemophilia Report. And thank you to Global Hemophilia Report's featured advertiser, Sanofi. Visit sanofihemophilia.com to learn more. That's a wrap for this episode part one of our two-episode coverage of Aging with Hemophilia. Subscribe to the Global Hemophilia Report wherever you get your podcasts to ensure that part two hits your inbox the moment it goes live. Do you know of any clinicians, researchers, scientists, med students, policy wonks, or patient advocates who would benefit from this content? be sure to send them to globalhemophiliareport.com or encourage them to search Global Hemophilia Report podcast today. For a list of links to relevant research and other notable resources pertaining to today's topic, please take a look at the program notes for this episode in your podcast player or visit this episode's webpage on bloodstreammedia.com. Thank you to our producer, Keith Corneluk, our editor, Japneet Dollywall, graphic designer, Tony Mendoza, creative director, Joshua Sterling Bragg, and executive producers, Amy Board, Rob Bradford, and Ryan Gielan. My name is Patrick James Lynch, and you have been listening to the Global Hemophilia Report. Until next time.
1: Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global hemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is breaking barriers and supporting the community at sanofihemophilia.com.